Welcome to episode 192 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. We have a new Patreon supporter. A pa- it's, I always get it. Is it Patreon or Patreon? <laughs> uh, I just thought it was Patreon, but okay. uh, I, I think that's how I've heard it pronounced on other podcasts and various, various sites. So I, I think we're okay with Patreon. All right, go for it. Yeah, thanks, Damon. Uh, really appreciate the support. And as always, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters. Uh, we have quite a few of them now, Chris, and uh, it's really nice. It just makes us, or like we say, always, it allows us to keep this thing churning. And we are we are doing just that. We were, we were just, just before we hit the record button here a, a moment ago, um, we made the decision to, to buy the software. We've been kind of kicking around for for some time to start doing, um, you know, some, some different and, and, and hopefully better, uh, podcasting. Eh? It's pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing that this may allow us to do and, and no promises at this point, but, um, it may allow us to open up the YouTube channel a little bit more, um, and put possibly like, uh, like actually have some video uploaded so that instead of, you know, imagining some of the stuff that we're looking at or talking about there, there will be like a visual side to this, but we're not hundred percent sure how feasible it is, but we're going to, we'll, we'll look into it. Yeah. We, we do this just for fun. Um, and it certainly is, is a lot of fun and, uh, and it's great to, to connect with the, uh, the listeners out there and, uh, yeah, we're just trying to, trying to set some stuff up, but it's, it's not free. Is it Shane? <laughs> to do it that way no no there's a little bit of cost there so um yeah we appreciate the help with that yeah i mean if you just want to record a podcasting and and get it out to to um to people you know you can do that but to to create a better experience um for doing a podcast for the listener um and then we're going to have some guests on and and to maybe um, accommodate the guests a little bit better because we, we did try to use some of the free stuff we have available um, for guest uh, podcasting with us and it, it didn't work how we had hoped did it. No, no, it, uh, it sucked. <laughs> yeah. But, but you came up with a good use for it, which is um, it, it kind of solves a, a different problem that we weren't trying to solve, which is um, we talked about perhaps trying to record some of our observing sessions and using using that software will work for that. And actually, I shouldn't say it's free. That software we're actually paying for for something else. Um, but we had hoped to be able to use it for multiple things. But it kind of seems like every time we turn around to try to do something specific and to do it well, um, so it's going to sound well. And right now, if my sound doesn't sound good, it's because they're plowing outside my home all of a sudden. Um, and you know, and in order to do it, you know, we're going to, we're going to be purchasing some more software and thanks to, uh, all our Patreon supporters, like Shane said, and thanks to uh, Damon for coming on and, and becoming a, a Patreon supporter to enable us to do that. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, Chris, here's the, the most important question that I've got. Uh-oh. Um, and I hope, <laughs> well, did you observe last night? It was probably the first night in like, I don't know, weeks, months that it was not freezing cold. It was clear. Um, at least earlier on, I, I did not observe. I had a, a niece's birthday party to attend, yeah. but, uh, did, were you able to get out last night? So I looked out, I, th- I thought about it. So my original plan was actually to go to my dark sky site. Cause it wasn't that cold. And I thought I might be able to get the place heated up. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and then when I when I looked out after dinner, so where where I live uh, on the edge of the city, I could actually see out into the prairie, and the fog was forming up. Oh, okay. And so we had had a fairly warm day yesterday, meaning that it was like minus three or something like that, and things were melting off pretty good. And um, and I'm a little bit cautious about the fog because. Um, I never used to pay that much attention to it. And I went out, um, one night with Mike, this is probably about 10 years ago now, maybe not even 10 years ago. And, um, and we observed and we could see this just kind of like what I saw last night. And, uh, Mike said, Oh, the fog is coming and we should probably get out of here. So, all right, like fog's no big deal to me. I lived in the Maritimes and we threw all our stuff in the cars and started heading home and, we drove into it. It was like, just like something out of a science fiction movie. I mean, you could only see like 20 feet ahead of you and we had to go up on the highway and it was super dangerous. So after that, I was like, if, if I think there's going to be fog, I don't go very far. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, so there was, it did roll in um, and it rolled in really quick. So I, I don't know how long you were looking out for it, but by the time I went to bed, it was, it was really thick out here anyway. Yeah. Like when I was, uh, when I was out and about, um, I think it was near sunset. So around 6 PM, things were looking pretty good. Um, and then when I came home around eight 39 o'clock, uh, I noticed that there was a little bit of a haze in the air. Um, but also that the, like, a, the transparency had probably gone down to like, say a one out of five, you know, mm-hmm. with, with zero being like hundred percent cloudy, like there yeah. was really no observing for me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was unfortunate because I think they were calling for it to be okay, but, and that's just kind of what we deal with either. It's, it's clear and so cold or so windy that uh, it's pretty difficult or you get this fog. And, and again, that's kind of why I've, I've made that step of, of getting a place. Cause uh, you know, if I can kind of get it set up right, this, this could take a few years to, to get it set up properly that, you know, I can go out and get set up. And, you know, if I, you know, if it's clear, I can, have my scope and observe. And if the fog rolls in, I can just man, go inside and, you know, have, you know, snack, and whatever, and sleep and, you know, like be all good. Um, but yeah, as, as far as going out and driving around in the fog that, that we can get here when those conditions set up like last night, I, I, I I'm just not going to play that game. It's, it's way too risky. And I've been caught out that one time was really bad. Then there's been other times that have been not as bad, but after that experience, you kind of like, mm, is this going to be really bad or, or what? But uh, any, anyhow, so no, I, I didn't get out. I did look out and I was looking at uh, Cirrus and I could see uh, Jupiter getting pretty low now and, you know, stuff like that. The other morning I was looking at Venus just, just out the window. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, yeah, I think yesterday, I think, yeah, yesterday morning, the planets were all, all lined up, but it was cloudy. I looked out and it wasn't, you couldn't see them, unfortunately. So it, the, the, Clear weather that they forecast isn't as clear as what is being forecast, unfortunately, is the way to put it. Mm-hmm. This has been the worst winter, I think, ever potentially <laughs> for astronomers here locally, Chris. Like, I don't remember, um, I don't remember like being this shut in for astronomy where it was like, like we've said, it's pretty much been cloudy the whole time. In the few yeah. moments it hasn't been cloudy, it's just been too cold. And, you know, I've toughed it out a couple of nights just with some binoculars in the backyard on the, you know, the really cold nights just to do something, but it's really been, it's, it's really been awful. So I'm, I'm hoping that this means we're going to be rewarded with like a great summer or spring or something for observing. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Who knows? Who knows? This has been brutal. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, 
So, yeah. So what's the news on the six entry factor? I've been looking at this note here since before we started chatting. <laughs> yeah. So, so like probably for what I would say the last month or so, I've been periodically mentioning things about a six inch refractor. You know, um, we've talked about the six inch acromats, uh, talked a little bit about six inch apochromats. Hmm. And, uh, this was something that was, well, a six inch refractor has always been on my kind of want list for a little while now. Um, you know, my largest refractor is 120 millimeters. So about 4.7 inches and, um, you know, a six inch would definitely give me some more light gain or, or gathering ability and, um, uh, probably similar views or, or again, light gathering capabilities to an eight inch Newtonian. And I've always enjoyed the views through eight inch Newtonians. And, uh, anyway, was thinking about one of these refractors, um, but I really just, I can't decide on what I want there. And then the other part of me is like, I don't really know if I need it. <laughs> um, like the, the 120 millimeter ED that I have, it's a sky watcher. It's a wonderful telescope. And, uh, you know, I probably don't even use that one enough. So adding yet another telescope to the collection, I think I'm just going to wait, um, and, uh, and give it a little more thought to see if it is the right approach or not. Um, and, and really just kind of enjoy the telescopes that I have. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds, uh, oddly reasonable for you. <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. Well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, with me too, I change with the direction of the wind. So perhaps, uh, next week I'll have a six inch refractor in my basement to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just when you've decided, just when you've given up, then. Yep. That's that's when it uh, that's when it comes out. Yeah, sometimes though I see a good deal on one. I think I saw one. It was it was only in the states. It was uh, like a six inch f five. This about maybe three or four weeks ago. We might have even talked about it. And then uh, yeah, the price on it was fairly good. You know, sort of low hundreds of dollars kind of thing. And you know, if you if you can find the right one for the right price, or you know, like it, it turns out that somebody down the street. Uh, you know, happened to buy one because they did sell a lot of those like six inch refractors for a period of time there. And, oh yeah, I've had this scope around and, you know, what do you want for it? Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Take it off my hands. I just want to get rid of the thing or something, mm -hmm. you know, suddenly you just end up with uh, a piece of gear. Uh, you know, I've certainly had lots of emails or, or people taking my astronomy class over the years, offer me telescopes. Oh yeah, we've had this scope, but you know, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, no, I, you know, it's not, not a scope. It's going to be something that that I'm going to be able to use, but, uh, but yeah, you never know. I have heard of stranger things for sure. So mm -hmm. my so, plan, yeah. my plan, I think this summer is to attend the Saskatchewan summer star party, assuming it happens, uh, this summer, which did last year. Um, you know, there's usually about 300 astronomers that show up there, yeah. which means there's an awful lot of different gear, uh, to check out. And, um, my hope would be that somebody has a six inch there or multiple six inches. It would be great to find one of those like F 5.9, uh, uh, apochromats or sorry, uh, acromats, um, yeah. like the, uh, the red Altair that you've been lusting over lately. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, as well as the apples, you know, I'd love to look through them and, and maybe that would tell me whether or not I, I must have one or I can live without it. Yeah. Yeah, I know for sure. For sure. Yeah. I know that'd be. That'd be good. That'd be good. But looks, you did get something. You have something inbound or. Yeah. Yeah. I decided to, this is another thing that has been on my list for a little while. Um, 
which is uh, stepping up my Bino viewer game. Uh, there's a there's a person in Croatia. Uh, his name's Dennis uh, Levatic or Levatis. I'm not. Uh, I apologize if I'm pronouncing that last name incorrectly. I'm sure you are. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm quite sure I am. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so what Dennis does is he gets um, Zeiss Bino viewers. And I think they're probably microscopic. I'm not sure though. And um, he's been doing this for years. He gets Zeiss Bino viewers and then he kind of supercharges them for astronomy. So he puts on proper inch and a quarter eyepiece collets, uh, puts it on like the proper nose piece. Um, and then sometimes does some stuff with the prisms and things like that as well to, um, to just make them perform better. And he is like, well, and, and as such, his bino viewers are regarded amongst, you know, the better ones and that are available. So like the Binotron 27 or the Bader, what is it? Mark five, I think it is, um, or Mark four. I can't remember what they're, what it is, but anyway, um, this bino viewer is highly regarded. He is, uh, he's going to be, uh, like he's kind of, uh, running or shutting down this, the service that he provides or this business. So he's got a few of these bino viewers left once they're gone. I think they're gone forever. Um, he calls them, they're branded like the C's as is the acronym, but it's Carl Zeiss apochromatic and sharpest bino viewer is wow. the, uh, the acronym. But anyway, um, why these have been on my list for a while is they're, they're lighter and they have a shorter light path than the one, the bino viewer that I currently have. Oh, um, but also, so all bino viewers basically use a bunch of prisms to bounce the light around and get it to your eyeball. Um, and these prisms can introduce, uh, like some weird coloration and, and aberrations, um, that are just sort of inherent in most bino viewers. Mm-hmm. Um, this bino viewer uses mirrors, which, uh, takes care of that. It provides like a much better image with less scatter. Um, so anyway, the, um, the, the reviews on this are always really, really good. Um, so I decided to finally pull the trigger and I'm hoping that that Bino viewer will arrive, uh, this coming week or possibly, uh, next week. So hmm. that's exciting. So is it correctly oriented or is it like mirror reversed? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'm not sure. Yeah. Because I was looking at some of the ones and I'm not sure if he's the person that was creating them for Borg. I think Borg was using a, a mirrored one, but I think it was mirror reverse. Not that it, I mean, not that it would perhaps matter that much. Just wonder how I would personally take to something like that. Cause mm. sometimes I find those sort of things oddly um, confusing to my brain for some reason. <laughs> like, like I remember we did that, we did a, a YouTube video a few months ago and it was, mm-hmm. it was mirror reversed or no, it wasn't mirror reversed. It was correctly oriented. And I was looking at it while we were doing it. And usually when I'm looking at stuff, it is like looking in a mirror, which we're accustomed to. And, and that, that sort of thing just really, I, I had to go lie down afterwards. Like it was sort of oddly impactful to me. So I'm curious to see, uh, and when's it coming? Like I said, hopefully this week or next week. Um, okay. But it, I think there's still some delays globally with with COVID, you know, that are imp- impacting shipping. So we'll see if uh, if I'm impacted there. But um, yeah, I, I'm quite anxious to get it. I, I really want to play around with this and, and see what it does. Yeah. Yeah. I keep getting uh, January editions of Sky and Telescope because... They, they had been sending them out apparently to me and we were calling and, and complaining. And I think every time 
we called and complained, they sent us another copy. And, uh, <laughs> and I think they just continually were getting lost in the mail because they, they keep slowly trickling in every other, about every two weeks, I, two or three weeks, I get another January edition. <laughs> <laughs> oh jeez! So they're finally working through the backlog in the postal service somewhere. So I have, uh, I think I have three or four copies of the January edition of Sky and Telescope right now. Oh wow! But I was like, kind of complaining, like, what are those people doing down there? <laughs> but it turned out they were doing it. I'm sure because why else would I keep getting it? And I think they just <laughs> continually were getting getting lost. And probably what happened was, I, I know the last one they had sent me like back in November. Um, or the first one I got that was sent in November, it, it sort of took the typical time. They said, okay, we're sending this one and all right, great. And then it arrived like, I think like 10 or 12 days later, which is what they said. So I was like, great. But then I think the ones that they had sent out previous to that one, I think we're, we're stuck in the system somewhere. And eventually as somebody mined down to them or whatever, eventually they're like, okay, <laughs> these ones are, are finally going to get to this guy. <laughs> Gee, that's, that's funny. All right. Um, uh... Cool. Did you get an eyepiece too? Yeah, I, this was unexpected, and uh, this this hurt the bank account a little bit. Oh, <laughs> but um, uh, another thing I've been lusting over for quite some time is uh, maybe one of the rarer eyepieces out there. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I have a number of the uh, TMB super monocentric eyepieces. Um, the the original release, there, there was two series basically that, um, ended up with focal lengths, uh, every focal length between four millimeter and 10 millimeter. And then there was a 12 millimeter, I think a 14 millimeter and a 16 millimeter eyepiece, uh, that were part of the series two. So mm -hmm. that's sort of the base set. Um, but then, then they also released some longer focal lengths. Uh, they released an 18 millimeter and a 21 millimeter, but those ones, uh, those two focal lengths, they only released 50 of each, uh, five zero, uh, of each. Yep. So not a lot. And, um, I've always wanted, um, one of them. Uh, I don't know if I really need both, but I've always wanted one. And, and the 18 is, has been the one that's kind of near and dear to my heart because I use that focal length an awful lot for solar observing and, and, uh, lunar observing and, and really just a lot of general observing. I, for whatever reason, I yep. just like that focal length. And, um, anyway, uh, one of these popped up on by EE, mm. uh, last week. And I, I wasn't really hopeful that I would get it because the last time some super monos popped up on by EE, um, I felt like I, I put in a bid that was, uh, considerably, well, I shouldn't say considerably, but certainly well over, you know, the going rate for those high pieces. And I, I still didn't win it. Yeah. Uh, so I just assumed that this would end up, you know, in the stratosphere out of my price range, but, Lo and behold, I, I won the auction. So that should wow. also be coming hopefully wow. this week. And I'm That's quite exciting. excited for that. Yeah. Yeah, that is. That's really exciting. Cool. 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 Yeah. So that's the latest and greatest, uh, on my side. Um, yeah. what about yourself? I think your class kicked off. Yeah. I started teaching my astronomy class. I'm just doing four weeks this time. Usually I do eight in the winter, as you know. Um, yep. but because I'm, I'm now the the editor for the RESC Observer's Calendar. Um, I have that responsibility sort of um, as an additional thing that I'm doing. And I, I you know, I, I do all this stuff just for fun, like this podcast and the calendar now and and teaching my astronomy class. So I'm, I'm trying to balance it all out a little bit because to kind of 
to cut back on something a little bit and then to start up a new project, um, it seems easier to kind of balance my energy for doing a variety of different projects than it is to have um, sort of too many standalone massive projects. And I just kind of find once I get to about week six of an eight week course, I find I end up like pretty much just like having to spend more and more time, like creating the content for the class. Mm. And uh, I was worried that um, by the time I got uh, basically into that second month, that then I'd be looking at those deadlines for the calendar going, Oh, what am I doing to myself? You know, and I'd mm-hmm. be taking days off work to try to get it done. And I know that our project, um, our next, well, not our project, it's, it's our project at work, our scientific um project and uh i know that we're starting the next phase of that like sort of just after that so it's kind of worried about burning all of my energy like in march and just ending up in april just a wreck so i thought you know i'm gonna cut this one a little bit short give myself that extra four weeks in case i need it for the calendar but i think i'm ahead on the calendar but i don't i haven't done it before so you know i i don't really know there could be some learning curves or stumbling blocks that I haven't foreseen, but I started it in November. Typically people don't start it until April, but I won't have time. I won't have time in the, in the spring to do it because I'll be, uh, I'll be working on our, on our, uh, on our research projects. So, I mean, I work on it right now. I work on two, but one of them sort of uh, in the phase where it's just kind of like maintenance mode, but then we start the, the next phase of bringing participants in and that sort of thing. And I'm the person who, who talks to them uh, second, I guess. So uh, walk them through how, how the study works and everything uh, with the uh, primary investigators. So that, that really picks up uh, a lot of sort of that um, presentation energy anyway. So anyhow, just trying to, trying to manage my, my time there. So heard back from Clark, uh, my friend Clark uh, in, uh, in Ontario and Clark had replied to our listener question. I think I said it was Bill, but I don't think it was Bill, who asked the question. But anyway, uh, we had a listener question about why the stars rise in Taurus. Um, they appeared, the stars in Taurus appear to rise vertically um, out of the horizon, but they appear to set horizontally on the western horizon. Um, so why, why is this? And, and I, think, I think Clark did a pretty good job answering. Uh, he writes, uh, hello, Chris and Shane. I think my answer is on the right track, but it might need clearer language, as you'll see below. I believe the short answer to the question is that in the case of the orientation of the Pleiades and Hyades, the clusters are on different right ascensions or RAs. Yep, that's correct. It is a coincidence from our latitude that they happen to set at about the same time and appear horizontal. The Pleiades are on a more northern declination than the Hyades. Therefore, they are above the horizon longer, so the Pleiades must rise earlier than the Hyades if the pair set about the same time. Yeah, that's, that's in essence what it is. <laughs> that's, that's in essence what it is. Um, and I, I, I think that Clark's explanation here is actually better than what I'd given the listener sort of off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, what, what happens is that, uh, that when, we're, when we're looking at the celestial uh, equator, Okay, which runs just below the belt of Orion. And in fact, um, that's sort of one of the uh, more well-known asterisms that uh, the people might be familiar with. 
Um, but if you want to look at one that runs right through the celestial equator, the water jar. So that center line of the water jar is right on the celestial equator. If you actually watch the water jar of Aquarius rise and set, it will, um, you know, sort of rise, uh, tail first and, and, and then set tail first. So it, it doesn't get, uh, rotated at all. Um, but then like Clark was saying, once you start getting above, that's, you know, once you get, get further up in declination towards the North Pole, um, it's that difference between the celestial equator um, and those other stars. So, for example, in the case of the Hyades, which is uh, closer to the celestial equator than the um, Pleiades, um, you, you get more of a difference with the Pleiades. So it, it appears to rotate more. And then you can kind of keep extending this up. Um, you know, if you then look at something like, uh, Origa, you can actually see more of a rotation. And then if you look even at the top of Origa from here, for us, Shane, you'll actually see that it completely rotates around 360 mm -hmm. degrees. It never sets. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's that, um, you know, it, it's that, uh, that we're part way between the equator and the North pole. So now sort of the funny thing to think about with this is if you were at the equator, and, and you're looking up, you're not going to notice this um, because all the stars are kind of going to rise and set sort of just around kind of in sort of more perfect circles. And then again, the same thing at the pole, because uh, they're not really going to rise or set up there. They're, you know, the stars are all circumpolar. So if you're right at the North pole, everything's just going to, going to sort of rotate around. You're not going to get any of that, uh, that rotation. Um yeah, so so I think I think that was a good answer. I'm going to kind of Clark went on to to detail it out even further, but I think I think he got it there. I think yeah. um, by saying it is a coincidence from our latitude uh, that they happen to set at about the same time and appear horizontal, um, and that the Pleiades are on a more northern declination than the Hyades, um, that uh, uh, that because of this the Pleiades are up longer, therefore they're just going to rotate further, right? I mean, it just makes sense. And I think, mm -hmm. I think that's a really eloquent way to, uh, to put it. So, uh, thanks for that, Clark. That was actually better than, than what I written back to the, uh, to the listeners. So that was really good. Um, did you see the picture of the meat I put in the show notes? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. So, so we had, uh, we had received an email from, from Ryan who has a YouTube channel. I think, I think I read it off last week. I think it's like, uh, Ryan's barbecue talks. I think that's what it's called. Anyway, he's on, he's on hiatus from it. He said, um, but Ryan had written about some barbecue and then, um, Felipe had sent me, uh, sent me what, what, a uh, Brazilian barbecue looks like. And he was talking about different cuts of meat and that sort of thing. You can see that. I thought the thing on the right was like, uh, looked like a giant, uh, potato of some sort, but it's not, apparently that's, that's a bread. Um, oh, okay. But, yeah. I thought that was, uh, pretty cool but i guess uh barbecue is huge uh over like in brazil so hmm. yeah sounds uh, sounds pretty cool so I, I think we'll we'll have to do we'll have to do a summer a summer barbecue spectacular or something <laughs> there's there is nothing better than a burger off of the grill at one in the morning when you're observing <laughs> Let me tell you that uh that just powers me through the night and we don't do that enough i've done it like um I remember at the Saskatchewan summer star party, they had the starlight cafe or something like that, that yeah. they set up, which was kind of a, like almost like a food truck concept, but basically they would grill burgers till two in the morning or something. And yeah. And man, that was nice. Yeah. 
that would be uh yeah that would be good as long as as long as they had chicken burgers i'd be i'd be okay because i'm i'm not a red meat eater anymore um but yeah that would be cool that would be really cool we should uh, we should try doing that sometime we should uh we should prime mike for that mike's the mike's the big chef yeah, out of, yeah. of our crew. Although you're not too far behind, I remember we went to the grasslands once, and I was rehydrating some chili or something, and I looked over and I asked what you were having for dinner, and you were cooking a salmon, and that's not a joke. People yeah, yeah, look yeah. over and to 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 think about eating a salmon where we are in this desert environment in the middle of summer when it's like 40 degrees Celsius, it just seemed. <laughs> I got to admit, I think about that a lot. Whenever I'm having a sad day, I think about Sheen cooking a salmon in the middle of the desert. It was delicious. I think my wife was, she was like, he's cooking a salmon? Like, yeah, like a salmon. So, and then Mike came out. He was, I forget what Mike was making, some sort of ridiculous meal too, but um, that's that's more common for Mike to make something pretty good like that. So Mike usually would be cooking up some steaks and potatoes and, you know, baking a pie or something like that. Too. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and people got to imagine that, that, uh, so where, where we go and we're doing this, this is like, you know, really, really remote. There's, um, limited power. There's, um, it, it's huge, open rolling Hills, um, temperatures of 40 degrees, uh, in the day and four degrees at night. And there's, there's just nothing around. It's, it's just big, open, vacant land. And, you know, to, to go into this land, you got to kind of prep and prepare. So for me, I've, I have really scaled back. I used to take the big grill with me and that sort of thing, but, you know, just, just to even get everything together to get down there. And then, uh, for me, I'm just like basically lumping it for a couple of days and, and going, going maybe a little bit light. And then, then to see these guys whipping up some pretty fancy meals always, uh, always makes me laugh pretty hard because yeah, it's a, it's a pretty rough place just to get into and survive, let alone uh, cook a salmon. <laughs> so anyway, good stuff. Um, we heard from our sometimes collaborator, Mark Radici. I think he's been busy with a new job. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think he is quite busy by the sounds of it for sure. Yeah. He did write. He wrote, he wrote, wrote us. I think we're, we're going to try to collaborate on something, uh, hope, hopefully in the somewhat near future. But, but I think, I think last year you were, I think last year you and I both, yeah, you and I both transitioned to new roles in our respective mm-hmm. uh, workplaces. And so we, we know what that's like. So uh, yeah, we look yeah. forward to, we look forward to chatting with Mark. Um, but yeah, I kind of figured something was up because I, I I had quite a few uh, emails with Mark just outside of the podcast. Just we're both really interested in some of the stream, st- some of the same strange astronomical topics, and just kind of shooting the odd email back and forth. And then kind of um, that sort of dropped off just around Christmas, and and then uh, we'd heard that oh yeah I'm busy, and then and then he's busy. So um, yeah, we'll we'll hopefully do something else. But he did write, so I think. I think I may have given the wrong impression on this or we did somehow. So Mark wrote, um, I would like to bring one thing up in your latest podcast, uh, that there was the assertion that the full moon was rather bland. That, that was, that was me actually. Was it I, you? I, yeah. Uh-oh. Cause, cause if you remember, I, I think last week I talked about observing with the 50 millimeter, but oh. it was terrible conditions because of the transparency. And the only thing that you could see was the full moon. And I said, oh. I just don't observe the full moon. So. Okay. So, 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 Mark, so my bad. Yeah. Okay. So Mark said, uh, I was out only a few hours before full moon and took the images below. And he sent these amazing, beautiful 
photographs of the full moon. Uh, as you can see, there is always something interesting to see, even a full moon. Uh, yes, we agree. Shane will be forever banished from talking about the full moon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. I so, no longer have the right. Um, so kind of linking back actually, and uh, I don't think we ever published this, mm-hmm. um, but uh, again, I mean by published, like Clark and I collaborated on a project. And so sometimes, and and certainly we've collaborated on projects before Shane and they've, they've gone to press and been printed, but sometimes we'll, we'll work on stuff or go out for a night or many nights and kind of work through a list of objects or do some stuff. And other than this, podcast which we sometimes don't even talk too much about that stuff um it's just like a project that we do and have fun doing and then we kind of get on to other things but um one thing that clark and i did um this this is a few years ago now um it was after i moved out here but it wasn't it was close to the time when i lived in ontario and um we decided that we would do a study of the full moon um as seen with the unaided eye because it turned out that there, there was not as much um, sketched of what the full moon appears like uh, with the unaided eye. And, and, and there's been some sky and telescope articles and other articles about this. It's not, you know, it's not something that, that we kind of discovered. Um, but, uh, but anyway, so, so Clark and I did a whole pile of sketches of the full moon over the course. I think it was mostly in like um, late fall and over the winter, which was a great project to do in the winter for me anyway, because I could kind of run out and do a sketch of the moon in, in five or 10 minutes. So it wasn't too bad, even in really cold weather, put a, put a big glove on or, or do a little, come in and get warm and go back out and do a little more and um, didn't need to worry too much about being like super dark adapted or anything like that. So we did this study of the moon and what could be seen. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm there with, uh, with Mark Radici on this. Uh, I, I agree. Lots can be seen uh, on the full moon. Um, whether through a uh, telescope or, or taking photos of it can be very beautiful. Um, and then as well, I mean, if, if people haven't uh, going and sketching the full moon, um, trying, trying to do it without too much um, research beforehand um, is, is the trick. And then, and then see what you can come up with. And then, you know, you go and do, do some sketches over the course of a night or two and, and then the next month you go back and then after you do like a, like a few months of this, then go and start doing the research on it and, and then start to try to see what you can see. Um, but anyway, it's sort of, that's sort of a, a fun winter project to do. Um, if you live in a really cold spot like us. Mm-hmm. Cool. Heard from Bill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Did you see that? I thought you'd be interested in this. Yeah. Kind of neat what he's doing here. Um, so he's, Adapting some inch and a quarter H beta filters to his 15 by 70 binos. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, So, so I know he had bought, Ooh, I want to say, was it, it was one of the Teleview, was it a 101? It was a 101, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. 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 He bought one of the 101 millimeter Teleview uh, telescopes. I know they've had a a few different versions. Um, I've looked through several, they're all really good. So um, I, I couldn't recall which one it was. Um, but I think he did get as part of that deal, um, a one and a quarter inch H beta. And then he may have already had one or something like that. And so then what he did is he made these, um, cardboard re- reducers or expanders or whatever. Um, so you can put the H beta filter in and then kind of push that over his, uh, over his binocular eyepiece. And so he's got uh, basically uh, 15 by 70 binoculars 
um, that are that are using each beta filters that he can kind of uh, add and remove uh, as he sees fit. Yeah, it's a really cool like do-it-yourself um, sort of modification to add filters to a binocular that isn't uh, threaded for filters. And yeah, you know, I think I think some people maybe think that the filters have to go on the uh, like the objective side, but they they can easily go on the eyepiece side as well and and still provide the same level of performance. They can, although I'm going to say this, um, and I, I think I mentioned this um, before in other episodes, but um, person who who I I spent some time observing with and and lots of time listening to lectures on is Dr. Roy Bishop, who's a, a emeritus professor of uh, physics and astronomy at Acadia University in Nova Scotia, and um, so I was doing something like this, and it, and it does work. But uh, you have to know a couple things is that the filters are designed to go between the um, objective and the entrance pupil to the eyepiece. And so what happens is that when the, the light is passing through the filter, it's running. I mean, it kind of sounds weird, but it's kind of running more like in a straight line. It's, it's, I think it's planner to... Um, you know, it's just basically straight on to the optical surface, but when it's coming out, it, it's, it, it might not be like, you might not quite get it in that right spot. So it's coming out on an angle. And because of that, what can happen is on, on axis, it can be pretty good, but off axis, you can get some uh, deterioration. So that's different than just sort of um, holding it up to your eye where the light's just coming straight through. And then um, you can see it or putting it in front of the eyepiece. Um, when you, when you put it on the backside like that, you can run into some, some minor optical, um, oddities, but certainly I've held up eyepieces, um, or, or, or filters in front of eyepieces and done this too. Um, and so what I found when I've tried this and I've tried this is you can get some, um, strange reflections. That's all. Mm. Um, but what he's done, which I think will help to counter that is, and this, this is why I'm saying that is that he's extended out the cardboard a fair bit. If you actually look, um, like maybe you were wondering why does the cardboard extend out? It looks like a centimeter or so. And maybe Bill's done that on purpose because I think by doing that, and then if he's not using glasses or anything to look through them, I think he's he's going to be pretty close to being on center. So I think that's going to work well. And then, if, then I think as well, he's not going to get um, extraneous light or if there is, it's going to be minimal. And then as well, it's, you know, by being on center and, and by kind of having them recessed into something, it's going to reduce any kind of internal reflections or scatter. Um, so I think he's going to have good success there with these pretty exciting. Cool. Yeah. That's a, it's a neat, it's, it's a neat adaptation, uh, to, you know, to kind of breathe different life into binoculars, you know, give them a different purpose. Yeah. And I got to say, I'm pretty jealous. I'd re- I really want, I've wanted to do this for a long time. And something like this is right up, right up my alley. Um, what I have done though, that does work is I've stuck the filters to my objective lenses in mm-hmm. my, uh, 50 millimeters. I made up things and then kind of squeeze them in. So that way the light was, uh, and that was using two inch filters. Of course, Bill has one and a quarter inch filters, so they're going to work better on the, uh, on the other end. I always thought it'd be great if, if you could get three inch filters and then put them on the front of your binoculars, though, this would be, uh, obscenely expensive. All right. right. Uh, Heard from Peter. Peter sent some great um, photos of uh, the horse head. Mm. uh, Yes. Yes, There, which 
which is just off the eastern or leftmost star of Orion's belt, which is called Zeta Orionis. And uh, just uh, below to the south uh, west of that is, uh, I think it's IC434. I think that's it. And then the horse head is projected against this, which is Barnard 33 or B33, although not discovered by Barnard. I think it was discovered by Wilhelmina Fleming. Um, anyhow, uh, he, he uh, took a nice shot of that. He took a nice shot of uh, M42, the Orion Nebula. And then he took uh, a nice shot of uh, Andromeda. And uh, Peter's using his uh, Astrotech 70 ED. And uh, I really like that scope. There's, there's quite a few things I like about that scope. And one of them is, I think it looks really nice. Not that, you know, telescope looks or everything, but I, I do really like the look of it. It's kind of um, pretty classic uh, white with um, almost like a, like a silver or gray um, focuser with, with some of the other uh, external housing parts, silver or gray, same color. And I just think it looks... Uh, it looks really good. Just looks like a little professional telescope. I, I don't know why I like the look of them so much, but I think it's it's really nice looking. And then as well, um, it's pretty inexpensive and it comes with a lot of uh, nice accessories and it comes with a case and, and some good mounting hardware and that sort of stuff. And I think the price from Astrotech is like $299 or something. I think, it, I think it was $299 or something American, which is a pretty good deal for a 70 millimeter uh, ED telescope. Uh, it's F6, I think, or close to F6. So nice and fast, good price, and uh, comes with some nice accessories. I see these come out and I, I don't know if it's, it's, if it's even still available. It was when I was looking at it a couple of weeks ago. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's kind of like one of those scopes. If, if, uh, if I sort of had my dealers and, and could collect all the little scopes I want to, that would probably be one. Cause I like the price and I think for the performance, it's good. Oh, two inch focuser. So, and, and this is the other thing for that price. So 70 ED, you're getting all the light. It's a well-designed little telescope. It's, it's not, it's not fluorite glass or anything real fancy like that. So you're probably still going to have maybe some minor color fringing or something to that effect, but the correction should be pretty good on this. Um, but in, in comparison to something that I have, which is an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat, like a, like one of the classic sort of ST eighties um, that I paid about a hundred bucks for Canadian. And then I bought a good two inch focuser um, well, by the time I bought that and fiddled around with it to get it working properly with the two inch focuser. And honestly, I'm still not hundred percent happy with it. I don't know that I'm getting all the 80 millimeter, um, objective size. It's got lots of colors, so it's not really that great on planets and it's portable, but it's a little bit heavier than the 70 millimeter. And with the two inch focuser and what I paid for the scope originally, I'm pretty much up to about that, uh, that 300 price uh, point anyway. So I, I think that really uh, going for something like an AT70 ED uh, just makes a lot of sense over getting an ST80 and then trying to upgrade it to a two inch focuser. If that was available when I was doing that project, that's what I would have done. I think that's a, that's a smarter um you know, way to spend one's money. Cause you get, you get a scope that's ready out of the box and it comes with some good accessories and, uh, and you're, you know, you're, you're going to be able to look at planets and the moon a little bit better than with a uh, 80 acromat. For sure. And, and, uh, the Astrotech stuff, like the, the images that Peter got are really, really nice. Um, and I've used some Astrotech stuff in the past, like, yeah. um, had an Astrotech Voyager alt as mount, which was really mm -hmm. good. 
Uh, I've had, uh, I think I've had their inch and a quarter dielectric, um, yep. diagonal, yep. Great diagonal. So yeah, I, I think Astrotech makes some really good stuff and at a really good price too. Like you said, at, at that price, um, you're getting a heck of a good telescope, um, that can be in your collection for the rest of your life. Like you're not going to, uh, you're not going to be, um, you know, uh, want, in that in that aperture, you're not going to find uh, you know much better really in terms of performance. Uh, the, you might get into some fluorite telescopes that maybe you know have a touch better color correction or something. Yeah. But um, um, for the most part, this is uh, this is a really good scope. Yeah, and I, I think like compared to at least my ST80 anyway, uh, like an 80 millimeter f5 Acromat, um, you know, if you're you're really not going to get much benefit of going to that. Uh, to that slight increase in aperture over uh, a little ED scope, you know, uh, considering you're going to be losing some light and the quality of my ED or the quality of my ST is, is not going to be nearly what, what a 70 ED is. So um, probably in light grasp, they're probably going to be much, much closer than, than the 10 millimeters might lead you to believe. And then once you factor in the fact that, uh, you know, planets through an ED 70 millimeter can really begin to show detail. Whereas I, I do find it a bit of a stretch to see, um, good detail using, using the 80 and, and actually my 60 millimeter gives me better detail on the planets, um, uh, because it's, it's a fluorite, um, than, than the 80 does. So I, I was kind of a little disappointed in the 80 once I kind of got it all set up again, I it sort of did it more for nostalgic and uh, winter projects again like as, as you can see we get into these bad weather conditions Shane and I get a little bit squirrely and he ends up with uh, eyepieces and dreams of giant refractors so that's where mm -hmm. that's where I go to yeah. all right you and Larry had a chat about eyepieces I, I was sort of a spectator in that do you want to say a couple words about that yeah um so, so Larry has been putting together, um, a set of, uh, 0.965 inch Takahashi MC orthos and, um, really was just asking about the comparison between those and the, uh, the 0.965 inch Pentax SMC orthos. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I had a full set of the Takahashi MC orthos. Um, I still have a few of them. Um, I, I've sold the others because when I got into the TMB Super Monos, yeah, you know, I was starting to have an awful lot of redundant uh, focal lengths. And um, anyway, as such, I, I've sold the tax. Um, but basically, what uh, you know, what I told Larry, I'm just uh, bringing up the email here. Um, or you know what? Actually, where it started, he was asking me about the Takahashi High Orthos. Um, so. Um, there's the MC orthos, uh, which are focal lengths of five, seven, I want to say nine, 12 and a half, 18 and 25, um, all orthoscopic. And then they released, um, two high orthos, uh, so a four millimeter and a 2.8 millimeter. And what they are is they're, um, they're basically an orthoscopic eyepiece with a Barlow element in there. So it gives you the, um, the really short focal length, but it doesn't have such tight eye relief because like a, a four millimeter orthoscopic eyepiece would probably have, uh, an eye relief of under three millimeters, um, like a 2.8 or something like that. Um, which is exceptionally tight, almost unusable. Um, with the high ortho and that Barlow, I think you're getting four or five millimeters of eye relief. So it's not, it's still not like super great for like, uh, eyeglass wearers, but it makes it more usable. Yeah. 
Um, so I did have those eyepieces and, uh, Larry was asking me how they compared to like the Vixen HRs. Um, and what I basically said is, is like, I never had the, the two eyepieces at the same time. So I couldn't do an AB comparison. Um, but for sure the Vixen HRs are way more comfortable. They have 10 millimeters of eye relief. And as far as I'm concerned, the, the HRs are, are probably the best, like really short focal length eyepieces I've ever used. Although, you know, the, the nights when you can use them are pretty rare. And, um, again, the, the gains are probably fairly subtle over those, uh, tack high orthos. Um, and then anyway, through the correspondence, Larry asked about the comparison to the Pentex SMC orthos, um, what I said is, is they're pretty close. Although I, I do feel like the SMC orthos are, you know, again, subtly better on good nights, um, on, on sort of your average night. I don't think you're really seeing any real difference. Um, and <clears throat> you know, it, either set of eyepieces, uh, you, you know, would be, uh, really solid in anybody's eyepiece case. You know, they're, they're really good performers. Uh, I still maintain that those TAC MC orthos are one of the best deals in astronomy because <clears throat> if you find them used, you can uh, sometimes uh, pay, you know, between 75 and hundred us dollars for them. And the performance is just lights out. Like it's really, really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, we've got a couple more observations, but uh, I think we're kind of getting, getting to the end of our time here, Shane, but, uh, you know, one of the things I was thinking that maybe we could do, um, in the not too distant future is, and I know we have some, some guests lined up, so I have to kind of watch that, but is to do an episode on eyepieces and filters. Um, cause we kind of have taught, we had a understanding eyepieces episode, um, a few weeks back, uh, that I think is our most popular episode that we've ever done. And then I, I think that uh, we've never really gone in and explained kind of how um, filters work well with uh, with the eyepieces and exit people, maybe some stuff like that. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, but maybe we could look at that in coming weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I like that for sure. And, and Phil sent us a few uh, uh, audible messages about um, like star color and and yeah. some other ideas. So, you know, we can maybe weave that in at some point too. Yeah. Yeah. We can give that a shot. All right, cool. Anything else to add today? No, that's it. All right. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>